I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science. As usual, I am your host, Dr. Taylor Sparks, Associate Professor of the University of Utah. I'm in the Material Science and Engineering Department, and today I'm joined by Ramsey Issa. Ramsey, how you doing? Pretty good. How's it going, Taylor? Oh, I'm good, man. What's new? Um, nothing much. It's getting kind of cold here in Utah. <laughs> we're, we're having, <laughs> yeah, we're in mid-April. This is usually, you know, there's this joke that, like, there's, like, first winter, there's, like, first spring, and then it's, like, spring or winter of deceit. Like, we fooled you. Then second winter. Right about now, mid-April, we're in, like, the third winter. <laughs> yeah, we got hit with some snow, which was actually really nice. Yeah, oh, it's been day. great skiing. I, I am not complaining because normally April, it's like, they call it corn farming because when you ski on the snow, it's like big beads of corn form. It is not powder anymore. <laughs> it is like wet slush blobs. It's kind of fun to ski, but this is this is the best skiing we've had all year. So yeah, very happy, even though it's a little bit chilly in the valley. Well, let me tell you what, what's what been going on in my life. Uh, the last week, was it just a week ago or actually the week before that, I chaired my first big meeting and it was so cool, but so much work. So this was the Artificial Intelligence and Materials and Manufacturing Conference. It was in Pittsburgh. Uh, so much work goes into those, like a couple years of work. Like you have to organize it. You have to figure out where it's going to be, the venue, like the topics. You have to recruit speakers, invite keynotes. You have to like make sure that you have a, like there's so much that goes into it. So uh, it was a super cool experience, but I'm having like this relief that it's done now. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds like a ton of work, but I'm sure it was an awesome experience. Yeah, very cool. Um, another thing we want to shout out, Andrew's not here, obviously he's sleeping somewhere, but I don't blame him. He's been busy. In fact, he's been doing amazing work. Just last night, he was awarded our department's uh, Outstanding Master's Thesis Award, which is not surprising. If you've seen what he did, he just uh, defended his master's thesis. So congratulations, Andrew. And at his at his defense, the committee was like, is this guy master's? Because this is like a PhD's worth of work. And it is um, really amazing. Like three publications already with several more in the pipeline. The guy's amazing. Yeah, he's done some great work in genetic algorithms for materials informatics, which was fantastic. I've actually got to listen to one of his talks and I was blown away. Yeah, you'd you think he's a PhD for real. Yeah, he knows his stuff for sure. <laughs> well, uh, today we are excited to tell you about... Um, a really cool subject. <laughs> it's all about dental composites. Now you might've thought to yourself, dental composites, this isn't even materials, this is like biomedical engineering, or this is, you know, dentistry. But no, just like everything in engineering, all these other disciplines, they're waiting for material scientists to come up with better materials before they can do the next big thing in their fields. And that's definitely been the case with dentistry as well. So let's let's just sort of take the a trip in the Wayback Machine, go back in time for a minute and talk about the history of dental materials just briefly. Um, you know, obviously humans have been around for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> and as long as humans have been around, we've been breaking our teeth either due to not caring for them. You know, we sort of take for granted that we have fluoride and we have, you know, <laughs> we know how to floss and do these things. But way back in the day, you know, they didn't have these same tools and we can do preventative maintenance. Now, if there's a little crack that forms, we can get it patched up with the tools we'll talk about in today's episode. But back in the day, they didn't do that. And so extraction yanking that puppy out, that was really the best option because, man, 
I'm going to say every one of our callers, every one of our listeners has dealt with tooth pain before. Oh, yeah. I and mean, it's a I, special kind of horrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I actually read a little bit about this. And um, you were saying they ex- they used to just extract teeth yeah. back in the day. But they also used to use bee- beeswax to fill. Dude, I read about that. Yeah. 6,000 years ago in Which like, is, where was it? In Pakistan, right? Yeah. They packed some beeswax. In. So I don't know if that actually works or what? That's sugar on top of <laughs> <laughs> like areas that need sugar. Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, another one, the Etruscans, this is 200 AD. That's the first evidence we have of gold being used as a dental prosthetic, which makes sense, right? Gold crowns of, you know, in movies and stuff, you've seen it, like the big shiny gold teeth. Not like the girls we see nowadays, but like back in the day, gold was kind of like a, obviously very expensive. And so if somebody died on a battlefield or whatever, they're pulling teeth out to get that gold, right? Because it was pretty easy to work with. It had pretty nice properties and you could patch a tooth up with gold. Um, But really... The world, for the most part, has been using amalgams for the the majority of human civilization. Yeah. And there's still some areas. Are oh, still totally. Using it, yeah. I had some in my teeth, right? When I was a kid, I had amalgams. Uh, same. Um, I think I still actually have one, but I had an old amalgam one replaced oh, with totally. a composite yep. one. Yeah, I've yeah. done the same. Because they were like black and like they don't look good. They're, um, yeah. And obviously they're not safe. And so what exactly is an amalgam? So we're material scientists. An amalgam is just another word for essentially it's an alloy, right? Yep. These are alloys. They're primarily metal. So why on earth were they, who had the idea of saying like, hey, your tooth looks broken and it hurts. <laughs> Let me pour some metal in there, right? Yeah. But uh, it comes actually way back. So it go, you go to seven, the year 700 AD. This is kind of the first where it got sophisticated. I Maybe it was being done in 200 AD by the Etruscans, but we don't know much about it. But we do know that in the, around the year 700, the Chinese got really serious about it. In the Tang Dynasty, they started taking mixtures of tin and silver and other mixtures and repairing teeth. And from there, it got actually quite popular. And no surprise, the Chinese invented like everything uh, you know, from paper to the compass and now apparently amalgams. But that was used for almost a thousand years, right? That was like the best practice was to poise different things in. You know, the, the interesting way they make them is they have like a powdered metal and mix it with, I guess, liquid mercury. Yeah. Which is kind of nuts, right? You think your dentist is like sitting there mixing liquid mercury yeah. with some. Isn't that powder. crazy? Yeah. And mercury's, you know, there's other things like, you know, tin and a few other things kind of have similar behavior, but mercury is pretty, it makes these things really easy to work with because think you're not going to like have a little crucible full of molten metal and pour that into someone's mouth, right? <laughs> yeah. That's not going to work. <laughs> right. So you have to get something that allows it to not quite melt, but become workable. And there's certain alloys that form that greatly, you know, maybe it's a eutectic, right, that lowers the melting point, but it softens it up quite a bit. Adding a little bit of gallium to aluminum locks, right? Maybe you've seen that video on YouTube. They do the same thing. You yeah. touch it with a little bit of liquid gallium it, as it forms an alloy with the aluminum lock. Maybe it was titanium. But in any case, with the other metal, it becomes soft and kind of like putty, right? So that's essentially what these dentists were doing by mixing a bit of mercury. Now, nowadays, the year is 2022, mm-hmm. and we think about mercury and we're like, hold on a minute. And, you know, they just didn't know that back then. And so they were using this for a long time and it was sort of, yeah, th- it had consequences, but it was sort of better than doing nothing was what they what they had back then. Yeah. Um, that said, it really took off modern amalgams, right, where you're mixing, you know, tin and silver, a little bit of mercury, uh, different materials can be added into them. It's really like the 1800s where it kind of goes nuts. You had this French dentist, Auguste Tavo, I don't know if I'm getting that name right, but he really blew this off like just like did a great job with it and people started realizing wow there's really a lot of potential benefit here you can start actually fixing teeth in pretty major ways but what's what's wild is uh edward krakur and his nephew moses right so the krakur company right these guys were from i think they were from england they 
they learn about this technique that is getting originated in France, and they're like, well, dang, this is awesome. Let's go to the United States. So they come to the United States, 1833. They land in New York, and they start using these amalgams to fix dental patients' teeth, and they go absolutely crazy. They, In just 12 weeks, they earned over $1.6 million in today's earnings. Like Whoa. They were just like pulling it in, dude, because back then this was un- unheard of how, how much money they were pulling in. Absolutely wild. But get this, by 1835, so a couple years after they'd been there, the two of them already had arrest warrants because so many people that they had fixed their teeth for were complaining about the really crappy, shoddy dentistry where they were not doing a good job or there was mercury poisoning, like all these issues. So it's so great. These two, uh, they did all this. I read this article. It says by the time that they left, after just this very short period of time, they had, by most estimates, treated half of the adults in New York. Half of the adults of New York, they had put fillings in the teeth of half the people. So this was like a craze. Like imagine when like, maybe you can remember when like, I don't know. The Beatles came around. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You had this thing that everybody dealt with. You know, everyone had dealt with this problem. And all of a sudden you've got this wild new technique that seems like it's awesome, only to be a bit of a a sham, right? So, you know, do they go to jail? They don't. They flee the country. Back to <laughs> they go back to England. So they get away with it. So anyways, the history of um, amalgams itself is crazy. It is so, so crazy. But that said, you know, for we've gotten better at them over the years. And up until not that long ago, we were still using these. And in developing parts of the world, they still use them. Yeah. Although we're really trying to get them away from nursing mothers, from uh, little kids, because some of these things have mercury or little bits of lead in them. Over the years, they've used some kind of nasty stuff that you don't want in your mouth. And so it would be great to get away from that. And how do we do that? What is away from that? Like, what do you, what else do you use? If not bits of metal, what do you use? Dental composites come into play in about the 1960s where this uh, researcher, I think at, at NIST at the time, developed a highly viscous monomer resin called bisGMA. BisGMA is just a high molecular weight polymer that had a very rigid backbone structure. I think it has like two phenyl rings or two yeah. benzene rings. Think of like the, the tough or the really strong polymers that from your intro to MSC book, like Kevlar or nylon. They, they have some things in common. They'll either have like amide groups. That's like a nitrogen bonded to a hydrogen. They might have oxygens along the backbone. They usually have like that benzene ring along part of the backbone. BizGMA is no different. It's got the, the aromatic rings, right? The, that's the benzene ring along the backbone. They've got, what else do they have? Um, it's got hydrogen bonding off the sides, right? Yeah, it has uh, hydroxyl groups that incorporate hydrogen bonding when, when it's all mixed together. You also have a methacrylate group, which is highly reactive. Yeah, methacrylate. Let's talk about that for just one minute. If you haven't taken OCHEM, let me just briefly describe it. Normally think of like ethanol. Ethanol is like, these different alcohols have like the long carbon chain, but at the end, they've got the OH group, so it has an alcohol group. Well, these methacrylate groups, what they have at the end, it's not just an OH group. It's a carbon with a double bond to an oxygen, just like so the oxygen is like hanging off on the side with two bonds going out to it. Then you've got a carbon bonded to typically another oxygen, and that's bonded to a methyl group. So what's so great about this is that those double bonds can be broken, right? If you have like a free radical or you have something to kickstart a polymerization, it can attack that double bond. And all of a sudden, this molecule can attach to another molecule and cross-link and attach to others, and you get polymerization. Yeah. So... Moving away from these amalgam materials, because again, your mouth is an extreme environment, right? You have a lot of mechanical wear and tear. You have a lot of chemical wear and tear. So you need a material that's going to withstand all this, all these kind of 
changes in environment, right? You also have temperature changes when you're drinking something hot, you go to something cold. So you have all this changes in your mouth going on and you need a material that's going to be chemically and mechanically stable. So we moved or we're trying to move away from amalgams. So we get to these dental composite resins, which incorporate a polymer matrix that has a filling material inside of it. Yes, because it can't just be plastic. Plastics are going to be way too soft. Even these strong ones, they're not going to hold up when they're grinding against the, you know, the, the hard ceramic, which is your teeth. Absolutely. So they add bits of stuff like your teeth, bits of ceramics in there. Yes, ceramics, minerals, mainly silica-based fillers, which are kind of SiO2 type of glass, very fine particles. And they've tried to vary them from sizes, try to make them into fibers, rods, yeah. hollow spheres to try to see what the mechanical performance is. And the idea of adding these silicon-based fillers into your into your resin matrix is to strengthen the mechanical properties, right? Uh-huh. So what, what goes into a dental composite resin? So you have your resin matrix, you have a filling material. So the matrix is the stuff that when it does get polymerized, this is the stuff that actually links up to one another. Yeah. Okay. And you've got a filler, SiO2. What else? And then you also have pigments for coloration because we talked about how amalgam is just, <laughs> you open your mouth and it's just yeah. like, you look like a sailor. Yeah. Right? White teeth look nicer than not white. Sure. Yeah. And then you also have uh, inhibitors and initiators. And inhibitors. Ah, so tell me about those. Inhibitor is to inhibit any side reactions that occur during polymerization. Right, you okay. don't want any uh, any formation of any material or any chemical in there that is not going to contribute to the overall strength of your composite material. So you want to inhibit anything that any side reactions, and then an initiator. These also help give it stability on the shelf too, right? Inhibitors help prevent the reaction from polymerizing while you're waiting to use this material, right? Because in the real world, right, you don't you don't like mix up your batch immediately then use it. You buy this stuff and it sits on your shelf for six months. Yeah, that's also why they kind of keep them in those dark containers. Yeah, because these reactions, so uh, we've said that you can polymerize these things. Most of the time, that's a UV cure, right? You shine either UV or some colored light. In this case, blue is actually a pretty common one, blue light. But that kicks off the reaction. So if you've got light sort of bouncing around in your room, that's going to be a problem. So yeah, keeping these in a dark, you know, cool space helps prevent them from starting too early, which would ruin the composite. Yeah, and actually the lab that I work in we avoid blue light completely. So you go in there and it's all red. So yeah, we should have mentioned this. If you're wondering to yourself, why the crap does Ramsey know so much about dental composites? Well, I can tell you why he does. He's doing his PhD sponsored by Ultradent Products, which is an amazing company here in Salt Lake. You know, they produce some of the, a huge amount of the world's dental products actually, and some of the best. I know about them because that was the first place that hired my dad when he was a non-traditional student, you know, never graduated high school. And he goes back when he's 40 and gets a degree. And uh, he was not like an amazing student. And so who decides to take a chance on him? None other than Ultradent Products, which is so. They've always had a soft spot in my heart. And, uh, and now that they're sponsoring Ramsey's PhD, it's very, very cool to get this expertise on the inside. Yeah, they've been amazing. A lot, a lot of the work they do is, is really cool as well. They, they're, they don't just specialize in composite materials. They have oh, yeah. uh, UV lights. They oh, yeah. do a lot Everything. of, like, yeah, a ton of cool stuff. Really, really just overall great great company it's been a pleasure working there so they are not an official sponsor of this episode but they are a sponsor of ramsey's phd and we do think they're an amazing company so check them out yeah. <laughs> i'll say this i had never used their well when i was a kid obviously we used their stuff because i think my dad worked there um and we probably he probably brought home stuff or we tried stuff out but 
nowadays, I buy their toothpaste because it freaking rocks. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. at least from the, the stuff that I can say about it, it's been a really great company. Sweet. So shout out to UltraDent. So back to the topic at hand. Ramsey, oh, you yeah. were saying that there's all these different things inside of it that, you know, Ultradent doesn't even allow blue light in the room. What else do you have to say about it? So we got to, the initiator, like you said, is to initiate a photopolymerization reaction. So once UV light is shined on this composite material, the initiator reacts and creates a photopolymerization radical that goes yeah, through. It's a chain material. reaction, right? Yeah. You bring in the light. It breaks a double bond somewhere. Now that that double bond is broken, you've got a free radical. That can attack another double bond. That creates another radical. You, you've seen this. It's like putting Legos together at that point. They just start snapping together. Yeah. So there's lots of different fillers. You've mentioned that silica, when I was reading this review article, um, which we'll, we'll post in the show notes, I talked about that there's just been a ton of them. There's been big ones and small ones. There's been like tough ceramics and non ones. There's like been rough ones. One of the problems if you go to these kind of really big, irregular shaped ceramics as fillers is like as the softer plastic, right, the monomer, the polymer sort of wears away, you can end up with a big gouging sort of piece of ceramic that will actually mess up the other teeth that you're biting against. So that can be problematic. So it is better to keep these things a little bit smaller. But a smaller also doesn't have the same properties as some of the larger composites. So in some ways, there's an optimum, a mixture between the big and the small that is going to give you the best performance. Yeah, so a lot of the problem that they have when they create nanoparticles is that you have a high surface energy of these small nanoparticles, mm -hmm. so they want to get okay. together. Yeah, they're chemically more reactive. Yeah. Surface, so they, we know that surface area comes with a surface energy, and that's a penalty. Yeah, and you want these fillers to disperse throughout the matrix. You don't want them just concentrated in certain sites. So when you have you know high surface energy nanomaterials, they're just going to kind of get together because of the high surface energy. So, you, But you don't want that. You want a dispersed yeah. filler to give you that... Uh, kind of mechanical strength throughout the resin. Yeah. Another opportunity, I guess, is that, you know, silica is great in terms of its properties. It does what it does, but it doesn't remineralize particularly well. It's not necessarily antimicrobial, but you could add fillers that work in those two areas. You know, if you add bits of appetite or some of these other fillers, they can actually help remineralize. So if a crack forms, it can sort of form again, sort of that same mineral to help bridge that close that crack and restore strength. And more importantly, prevent bacteria from getting in there and eating stuff up. Um, you can have straight up antimicrobial stuff, right? And this is sort of on the frontier of what's happening with these composites. What if you design these things so that they just don't allow bacteria to, to propagate and dissolve your tooth? That's kind of what they've been. That's like the next step in dental composite materials where they, they've actually have worked on calcium phosphate ions, right? They try yeah, to incorporate appetite. that. Yeah, which is... Um, what your teeth are already made of. Yeah, which is going to end up bonding to the to your tooth a lot better than some you know dental resin but yeah so that's a good point with these dental composites the the primary mode of failure when that when they go wrong and they're pretty good but they do break after a while they're not like lifelong typically is they debond right yeah they debond from the tooth and so these interfaces and engineering these interfaces to have the best bond possible becomes the name of the game right this becomes really important um so how do they do that what what have they done to sort of improve that bond between tooth and dental resin okay composite? So so like Taylor was saying, you, uh, the main mechanism of failure is either debonding from the tooth and the resin or the filler from the resin. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you've got your filler particles, and if you're worried about them debonding, how do you make them bond a little bit better? You can treat them somehow, I assume? Yeah, they do a surface treatment with silane molecules. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the silane molecule has a 
organic and inorganic component to each side of it. Mm. The organic component is going to bond with the resin matrix and the inorganic component is going to bond with the filler. Oh, this is just like our old, like our friends, the lipids from our previous episode when we talked about, you know, you got something that's water loving versus water hating. And so it can sort of form these emulsions. So similar concept here, you have this bifunctional molecule that bridges the gap. Yeah, it's basically like an, a way to attach or strongly attach the filler to the resin, right? Okay. By creating strong bonds. Uh, so it acts it acts as like an intermediate between the filler and the composite gotcha. uh, resin. So let's summarize. We've got the monomer. Think of this as like the epoxy, right? The glue that's going to hold it together once it gets uh, bonded, polymerized. You've got the initiator that helps with that process. Inhibitors that sort of slow that down, right? You've got fillers, and then we can surface treat the fillers. And then obviously there's pigments, right, to try and get the right color. Is that more or less all the stuff in, inside this dental resin composite? Yeah. So how do they figure, that's, what is that, like seven or eight things we just said? And each one of those can have many categories because there's not just like one type of, you know, there's bis GMA, which we mentioned is this one that has like the benzene rings and the phacolate groups. But there's a gazillion variations on that. Molecules that look very similar to bis GMA, yeah. but aren't it. There's a gazillion different inhibitors. There's all sorts of different filler materials. How do they pick the right mixture? My research is focused on using materials informatics to try to find the optimum combination of about, you know, yeah. 90 or so different. So uh, many different variables. Materials. Yeah. Yeah. If you tried to do like a design of experiment, it would just be impossible. So what you're, you've been doing is actually training, right? Off of training data to figure out, could we use a machine learning data science approach to help us pick the right mixture of these things? And so far it's been, it's been good. Pretty rad. Yeah. <laughs> We can't disclose too much. Of yeah, <laughs> but it's been good. Yeah. So so let me say, you know, BIS-GMA is clearly the material that has been the workhorse for this field, but there's a big move away from it. How come? It inc it has BPA in it. Our old friend BPA. You've probably heard about this, right? We hear about water bottles with it or Tupperware and people microwave and that molecule comes out and apparently it causes, it wreaks havoc on your body. I don't know exactly what it does, but. Yeah, it's a forever molecule, right? where it just kind of stays in the body forever. So there's some concerns about the health impact. And bis obviously then if this is in your teeth, you don't want it coming out because then you start consuming it. Yeah, you definitely don't want any type of leaching of any material that mm -hmm. can just stay in the body. Like the reason we're getting away from amalgam, right? The mercury, mercury yeah. leaching into the body. So if you look at these emerging polymers in this review article, they point out a bunch of them. When I look at them, I'm like, oh, of course they're going to use these because these all look very similar to BSGMA. They're just slight differences. They typically have aromatic structures, meaning a benzene ring along the backbone. They usually have amide groups, add some strength. They've got things for hydrogen bonding. And they almost all of them have the methacrylate groups on the ends, which can cross-link cross -link nicely. So not surprising there. Now, something I learned about this when I was reading about it is that it's not just that one molecule that is used, even though that's the workforce for combining things. Its viscosity is way too high. It's too rigid of a polymer because it's high molecular weight. So they actually mix it with a co-monomer, which is typically a much smaller molecule, something like, and they have these crazy names, like TEG-DMA or whatever. But like, these are just smaller molecules that have, they lower the viscosity and make it more workable because this has kind of been an interesting thing. At least in your lab, you've talked about this. Like, you can come up with a composition, but if the experts who know how to like mold this stuff into a tooth shape don't like the workability and, the min and how you can manipulate it, it's a non-starter. Yeah, handling is a big issue when it comes to dentistry. You want your dentist to be able to squeeze this out of a tube and then work it into your cavity. Yeah. So workability is uh, a big one. Yeah, and a lot of times they they choose based on workability, right? Like your dentist is working with this daily, so there can be two composite yeah, if materials. If it's too sticky or too yeah. rigid or whatever, like 
even though one might have a better performance for the tooth in the long run, the dentist, you know, doesn't want to spend an hour trying to get it just right because time is money for them. Plus, There's a trade-off, right? Yeah, plus you'll be back in you yeah. know, sooner than later anyway. Yeah, geez. Yeah. So very interesting. There's actually a lot of cool stuff that uh, we could touch about a little bit of the bioactivity stuff. Yeah. So what I've been reading a bit about is they've been incorporating nanoparticles like silver, copper, titanium oxide into these fillers, which when they ionize in the presence of water actually show antimicrobial activity, which I thought was No, I've heard of that stuff for so long. Like whenever people talk about like, because, you know, I teach material science. So I give students design projects all the time. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen students say, oh, we're just going to make silver socks and then you don't have bacteria growing in your socks and they don't stink and then it's just like and like you can even see products where they sell this stuff but how effective is it how cost effective is it you know and maybe we need to do a separate episode on this on biocides you know materials but okay sounds like that's a possibility including something intentionally to kill microbes what else let's see so we talked a little bit about the calcium phosphate so ideally what they're trying to do now is get to the point where they could mimic your actual tooth because there's nothing sure there's nothing better than that (laughs) and we've evolved for a very long time and that's been the output so must be working yeah i think here's some let's let's give you guys some values so in terms of enamel the strength is 40 to 90 gigapascals, and for dentin, it's 11 to 20 gigapascals. So dentin being the inside part of the teeth, right? Dentin being the, the sort inside. of the, the core at the, at the center of your tooth. Exactly. The enamel's right. the hard part on the outside. Yep. That's uh, elastic modulus of enamel and dentin. So 40 to 90 and 11 to 20. So in comparison to a dental composite resin, a packable is about 4 to 20 gigapascals. Oh, geez. Yeah. We're way softer. Yeah, you can't... Which is why these things don't last forever. They wear. Exactly. But it's sort of a good thing, right? Because you don't want something stronger on the other end of... Then you damage the other tooth. Exactly. This way, you can just replace the composite, which I've had to do before. I've had a filling that, even though it was a dental resin composite, they've gone back and said, let's touch that thing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just got one not too long ago too. Mm-hmm. And I was I was just having full on conversation with him about about the dental <laughs> composite. Like, I can tell you all about this. Yeah. He's like, like, just keep your mouth shut yeah. or keep your mouth open rather. He's like wrestling <laughs> with my tongue trying to get around. Yeah, it was a, it was a disaster, but let's we we haven't talked about one important problem that does occur when they polymerize these dental composite resins, which is shrinkage. Oh, yeah. Shrinkage, so you can think about it like this. If you have this long chain monomer, you know, that is, is is in your mouth, and then when you hit it with light and it starts polymerizing, these these monomers... It can be a volume change. Exactly. You have a volume change. They shrink up and they get super as tight. They pack together and they crystallize a little bit or as they form a 3D network. It's most common that it shrinks a little bit. So think what that would do. Now you've got a material that is in a a cavity within your teeth, right? There's a little cave that's been drilled out. You've got that in there. And as it shrinks, that's adding a stress at the interface. And the interface is already where you're most likely to have failures. And so shrinkage will greatly reduce the lifetime of this material if it has that stress built in because it shrunk. So a perfect resin composite would be one that doesn't shrink at all. Absolutely. You also have debonding when the shrinkage occurs between the the, the tooth, filler. Yeah. Well, the tooth wall. Oh yeah, that's what the, I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Which is But I suppose the filler as well might also debond. Yeah. And you in those areas where there's debonding between the surface of the cavity and your resin, you actually have microbial buildup because now there's sure. just void. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Which, yeah. Um so how do you avoid that? What techniques are there to sort of tune that? 
just try to find, I think as, as far as I know, a composite that has minimal shrinkage. And you have a lot of variables to control for. You've got the main workhorse molecule, you know, what used to be bis-GMA, but now is all these other things. But you have the uh, co-monomer, right? The smaller one that modifies its viscosity. Some combination of these things can give you optimal properties. So this is an interesting material selection problem because it's not, you, you're not just optimizing for one thing like strength. You have to optimize for workability, for strength, for color, for, we did something we haven't talked about is uh, cure time and cure depth. Oh right? yeah, that's so a big one. So you want a dentist that's using this, they don't want to sit there for 30 minutes with a UV light shining in your mouth. <laughs> that could damage your mouth. It's too much time for them. They want to, and you, maybe if you've been to the dentist and had this done, you know that it's very quick. It's like a 10, 20 seconds sort of thing. Very quick, but it also depends on how thick. Sometimes if you had like a really deep filling where they need to cure the entire thing, they can't do it in one shot because the cure depth, the monomer and the filler and all that absorbs the light. And so they have to put a little bit in, cure it, a little more in, cure it. There's all this process that you don't think about, but it's a material consideration that you have to sort of consider. That's also why it's kind of problematic to have highly viscous monomers in there, right? It because, absorbs too much? Yeah, well, the depth of cure, you uh -huh. can't get to the bottom of that. So it's, it's nice to have a dilutant monomer, like you said, Tegma, that uh, allows for like those photopropagation gotcha. through the resin matrix, which is nuts when you think yeah. about it. Way, way cool. So what? anything else we haven't covered? Um, let's see. I think so far we kind of touched base on everything. We talked a little bit about the toxicity of these various cavity filling materials. Like mercury was a problem with the amalgam. Uh, BPA is a problem with, with bis-GMA. So we're constantly trying to find a balance between a composite material or actually any material that can fill the void, fill these cavity voids in your, in your teeth. But you have a lot of trade-offs, right? Between strength, workability, shelf, life, shelf cost, life, cost, manufacturability. Yeah, geez, there's of, so much to it. Yeah, but this is such a cool materials materials problem, right? Because you know you got to think about all these variations, and yeah, man. and your mouth is again this extreme environment that sees acids, bases, <laughs> you know, mechanical strain. Yeah, cyclic yeah. loading. Yeah, right. <laughs> so much. Um, um, um. Yeah, for real, dude. <laughs> right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, it was fun to learn about it. It's something that we think we know because we, I'm guessing every one of our listeners has had a cavity filled. And so we've been aware of it, but then you don't think about the material science going on there and how advanced it is. And at the same time, how much more can be done, right? Absolutely. It's sort of cool to think like, what if we pull off these materials that become completely antimicrobial or, you know, crack bridging? Like what will the, the composites of 10 years from now look like? How different will they be? Pretty exciting to imagine. Maybe. Yeah, who knows? Right? <laughs> well, who knows what they'll be doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, quick shout out to our sponsors. We, as always, are really grateful for the people that make the show possible. Uh, today, we want to shout out to Elsevier in the journal Materials Today. Right. So Elsevier is a company. You've heard us talk about them. They have conferences. They have journals. They have websites. They have a community. They, they're a community builder in this space. I publish there. I'm actually a journal editor for an Elsevier journal, two of them, actually. So they're, they, they've done some great work. One of the main articles that we did use oh, yeah. today, uh, the review of dental composite resins actually is up on Elsevier. So we'll yeah. put that in the show notes. You guys check it out. It's, it's actually a really great review. Yeah, well done. So special thanks to them. Uh, we also, as always, want to point out that the, the music that we use in this show is special thanks to Colabyte and to Alphabot. Check them out. You can find them on all sorts of places, YouTube and Spotify and elsewhere. So check them out. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. 
We get great suggestions. This was one that came from a, a listener actually a while back. So if you've got an idea for an episode, shoot us an email. You can find us at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Obviously, we are most active on Instagram. We love the Insta. We're posting stories. You'll see Andrew's amazing artwork. You'll see random, you know, I'll be honest, I'll post pictures of me skiing and whatnot in between episodes. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, right. You can find us. It's the at materialism podcast uh, handle on Instagram. I think that's it. Thank you guys for, for tuning in. It's always fun to do these episodes. We'll catch you guys next time. The adventures of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.